here's the problem with our perception of success in health and fitness. And this is what I'm trying to change in this industry is our perception of success is that number on the scale going down continuously week after week as if weight loss is linear. And what happens is we, we focus so much on the results as if we get the results, then we're successful. If we don't get the results, we're not successful. Instead of learning to fall in love with the process because we're worth it. So people look at the process as a chore. I have to do this process, which sucks, which is eat less food and work out to get these results in hopes that once I get the results, then I'll be happy. Then I'll have this perfect body. Then all my problems will go away. Then the world will love me. Then people will, you know, will give me more attention. I'll, I'll love myself thinking, oh, you know, once I get there, once I arrive, then all my problems will go away. It's similar to like, oh, once I have this much money, then I'll be happy. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Drew Manning. And Drew is a personal trainer, a New York Times bestselling author, and a podcast host. He is most notably known for his fit to fat to fit journey, where he purposely gained and lost over 60 pounds to better understand himself, his clients, and what it actually takes to achieve and maintain weight loss. We get into the why, how, and what of his weight loss journey, as well as the lessons gained from doing it. I ask him if there was ever a moment where he was ready to give up and what he learned from the client perspective about the complexity of weight loss. Drew gets super vulnerable as our combo shifts into talking about his struggles with porn addiction. This includes talking about how it started, how it evolved, and how he overcame it, as well as the role that religion played. Drew shares some specifics, including tools he uses with his clients to help them optimize their mindset and their overall health. We also chat about co-parenting and how he healed his relationship with his ex-wife after his infidelity and his porn addiction led to their divorce. This combo is real. It's raw. And it's one that I think y'all will dig. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Drew Manning to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Drew Manning, welcome to the podcast. What's up, Doug? Thanks for having me on. Of course, man. I mean, there's, there's so many parts of your journey that, that fascinate me. I mean, one of which is that you're so open about your, your struggles. You're, st- you're so open about your insecurities and a lot of the painful moments in your life. You talk about your divorce a lot. You just went through a recent breakup that you've been open about. You talk about your addiction to porn, infidelity. But I think where I want to start this conversation is, is something that really helped you build your brand and kind of get you mm-hmm. to where you are today. And that's that you are a trainer. And then you decided to take this crazy expedition, if you will, to gain a bunch of weight to help your clients lose weight. And honestly, I remember like when you first started doing it and when I initially saw it, I was like, why is this guy doing this? Because I was the guy who was the person who lost a bunch of weight, then became a trainer. And I was just thinking in my mind, like how scary that would be to to put on like 50, (laughs) 60, 70 pounds and then have to lose it all over again. So so why'd you do it? How'd you do it? Mm -hmm. And what were some of the lessons that you learned along the way? Yeah, great question. So why did I do it? It kind of stemmed from, you know, me growing up in a family of 11 brothers and sisters, we all played sports. So football and wrestling were part of my life growing up. So I was always active. And so I was your typical personal trainer that was into fitness that, you know, that was part of my lifestyle and it became kind of easy for me to become, uh, you know, fit or to to be in shape just because that's all I had ever known. And then I would, here I was someone who had never been overweight a day in my life trying to help people who were overweight pretty much the majority of their life. And there was an obvious disconnect. I couldn't understand why it was so hard for my clients to just do what I told them to do. Like, Hey, here's your meal plans. You just follow them. And then here's your workouts. You do those every day and you'll see results. And then there would be struggles and they would give in to cravings and temptation and stuff like that. And I'm like, why can't you just do it? Right. (laughs) That was my mentality because that's how I trained myself was that you just do it right until, you know, I kind of took it to heart when one of my clients said, you don't really understand what it's like to be overweight for you. It's easy for me or for people like me. It's really hard. 
And I was like, you're right. I don't understand. So maybe there's a way I can gain a better understanding. And I was thinking of ideas one day and then boom, this idea popped up in my head. Like, what if you got fat on purpose? Like, and documented the whole journey. And so it felt like a really, really, uh, almost like a calling to do it. It was really weird. I felt like, wow, this is a really good idea. Maybe I should do it. And ended up, long story short, I ended up doing it. Were you concerned at all at the beginning of like health, health reasons that you were going to, you know, escalate your blood pressure, you know, so high that it would be drastically hard to come down. You'd have to get on medication. Were you worried you were going to become pre-diabetic or develop diabetes? Was any of that going through your mind? Yes, it was. Cause I actually worked in the medical field at the time. And so I had a lot of doctors and nurses that I was telling them about what I was going to do. And they're like, are you sure you want to do this? Like this could happen. This could happen. This could happen. I'm like, yeah, I know. But I feel like this is such a short amount of time, six months of gaining weight. It's a, it's a short amount of time. Your body is pretty resilient. It could take some abuse. People live this way for years and decades and you're, you're, you know, I mean, you know, not everyone survives. Of course, if you do this continuously to your body, but anyways, I wasn't too concerned about that in the beginning. It was in the back of my mind. And towards the end, it did become, more prevalent where I did start to worry like, okay, cause I got some results back from my blood work throughout the journey. So there were moments of fear and like, okay. <laughs> like even when I was on Dr. Oz, he was like, man, you're heading towards cirrhosis and you're, you have a, a non-alcoholic fatty liver, you know, in just six months time, which was really crazy, really scary. My blood pressure got up to 167 over 113. My testosterone dropped to the low two hundreds. All these things were scary, but I felt, okay. Like I didn't feel like I was dying. And this is what I think happens to people is they go on these, you know, they, they live their life, you know, they're not the healthiest, but they don't feel like they're dying. It slowly creeps up on them over time. And, and that's, what's scary about all of these health issues is like all of a sudden, boom, you have a stroke or you have a heart attack or you have something that's catastrophic. And then you're like, Oh, now I need to make some changes. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So yeah, I was worried about that. Getting getting into the how, do you want to transition to that or any other yeah, questions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To the how, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I decided for this is back in 2011, by the way, just for some reference. Six six months, no exercise. I so I stopped exercising completely. It's not like I was bulking up like a bodybuilder where I just you know lifted heavy weights and ate whatever I wanted to. Six months, no exercise, unrestricted diet, and the way I did it was, you know, we've all seen Supersize Me from Morgan Spurlock, great documentary about fast food or McDonald's in general. What I want to do is focus on everyday American foods that we grew up with in the 70s and 80s that were marketed to us as somewhat healthy food. And so I focus on a lot of, you know, affordable, convenient, very tasty processed foods to gain the weight. And so for six months, I ate things like cinnamon toast crunch and, you know, frozen burritos and white bread and white pasta and granola bars and chips and cookies and crackers and hot pockets and mac and cheese and top ramen and spaghettios and and all these delicious foods that we've, you know, grew up with. <laughs> and I, that's what I gained 75 pounds in those six months. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And then the other part, the second half was walk the walk and put my money where my mouth is and show people how to lose the weight. Um, and that's kind of the how in a nutshell. What did I learn from this? The main lessons that I learned were, and I was so humbled, by the way, it was way harder than I thought it was going to be, this whole experiment. And that's, I think, where the valuable lessons were learned was in, in how hard it was. And I realized how much of transformation is mental and emotional. Like, man, I was blown away at how this journey affected me on the mental and emotional level rather than just physical. I went into it thinking it was going to be physical. Gain the weight, lose the weight, boom, you're done. Little did I know uh, my whole identity would be kind of rocked at the core and kind of, you know, my eyes were open to just, you know, how wrong I was. And how hard transformation is, not just physically, right? We all think transformation is physical, just eat less and work out, and then you'll see results. Why? Like, it's simple, right? But to apply it is really difficult. And that's where I started to realize, man, I'm, I'm so wrong in my approach to helping people transform because all I know is the physical. The mental and emotional stuff is really what people struggle with. The second lesson I learned was how powerful the emotional connection to food really is way more powerful than we think. We underestimate food as probably the most powerful drug on earth, in my opinion, because especially here in the United States, we have so much processed food that is in front of our face. Like you go to the grocery store, 
there's hundred different flavors of cereal. Why do we need a hundred different flavors of sugary cereal? I don't know. It's amazing. It tastes amazing. Don't get me wrong. I love cinnamon toast crunch, but it, do we really need that much? Do we really need all these different flavors of like chips and cookies and crackers and granola bars and cereals and sodas and man, it's, it's, it's really hard, but the emotional connection of food is more powerful than I ever imagined. So those were the two main lessons that I learned from that first experiment. So was there ever a moment during that transformation, specifically when you were losing the weight where you, you felt like giving up or you hit this plateau? Cause I think that's what, what a lot of people struggle with, right? Is when they start the, these journeys, you know, as a trainer, it's easy to get started, but what really checks people is when things start to get hard and the scale isn't moving or they're not getting stronger or they're not seeing the results or the mental and emotional and psychological stuff starts to take over in the mind. So was there ever a moment where you felt like, man, I just, I want to stop. Maybe I'll change careers. Maybe I'll just let my clients down. And then if so, how'd you get through that? Yeah. Good question. There were, there were times where I hit plateaus that were demoralizing, I guess, even as a trainer, here I am as a trainer doing all the right things, you know, following my meal plans, following my workouts and still weighing in, you know, once a week and not seeing those results that I wanted to see. And that was really demoralizing for me as a trainer, but it really helps me empathize with my clients. Cause before I had clients who would tell me, you know, Hey, I'm following the meal plans and I'm doing everything right. But I just, you know, I, I gained weight this week or I'm not losing any weight for the past few weeks. And I'm like, all right, are you really following them? Are you just saying you are, are you yeah, lying yeah, to yeah. me? <laughs> yeah. And now here I was doing everything and still not seeing the results. Here's the problem with our perception of success in health and fitness. And this is what I'm trying to change in this industry is our perception of success is that number on the scale going down continuously week after week as if weight loss is linear. And what happens is we, we focus so much on the results as if we get the results, then we're successful. If we don't get the results, we're not successful. Instead of learning to fall in love with the process because we're worth it. So people look at the process as a chore. I have to do this process, which sucks, which is eat less food and work out to get these results in hopes that once I get the results, then I'll be happy. Then I'll have this perfect body. Then all my problems will go away. Then the world will love me. Then people will, you know, will give me more attention. I'll, I'll love myself thinking, Oh, you know, once I get there, once I arrive, then all my problems will go away. It's similar to like, Oh, once I have this much money, then I'll be happy, <laughs> you know? And this is my problems are, that is our perception. Cause that's what w marketing does and programming teaches us is to have those results. So what I'm trying to do is disrupt what, what success looks like in health and fitness and teach people to learn to fall in love with the process, not for the results necessarily, but because following that process feels good. I mean, to be honest with you, if you're truly honest with yourself, eating healthy food, yeah, it's not as tasty as eating unhealthy food, but it feels good to feel healthy. Like it feels good to wake up with no aches or pains, to have lots of energy, to have great sex, to have you know, great sleep, like to, to feel healthy is amazing. And I think everyone would agree with that to feel strong, to be able to, you know, run a few miles without feeling like you're dying or walk up the stairs without huffing and puffing, being able to play with your kids or grandkids or playing at the beach or, you know, hiking up a mountain without feeling like you're dying to feel healthy physically and to, to eat healthy food is a great feeling. And so if we could learn to fall in love with the process, because we, deserve to feel that way then if you fall in love with the process and just do the process because it feels good then the results end up taking care of themselves over time but you're not doing it for the results you're doing it because you're worth it to live that process to do those things because it feels good to you in the long run maybe in the short term it's not as fun right we all just want to eat drink and be merry and not worry about you know you know eating healthy or exercising but if we could change our perception of those things, then the results don't really matter so much, whether they come or not, we're doing this lifestyle because it feels good to us. So that's kind of my two cents on, on what, you know, what I've learned over the years and what I try and teach people is yes, you're going to hit plateaus. Yes. You're going to hit times where things are harder. You're not going to see the results that you want to see, even though you're putting in the effort, the key is to keep going no matter what, no matter if the results come or not, because you're not doing it for the results. You're doing it because you're worth it. And so, yes, I was able to overcome it, but I think just consistency, consistency and living the lifestyle, whether the results are there or not is important to break through plateaus. Right. No, for sure. I mean, consistency is everything. And 
you know, I love what you said about not just focusing on the scale because that's mm-hmm. like the default for people seeing if they're seeing success in their weight loss transformation. And even if they're gaining weight is, well, what's the scale saying? But there's so many yeah. other <laughs> things that you can look at to see if you're actually making changes. And so I love that you brought that up. I know one of the things that, that you, you kind of you hinted at, but didn't get too deep in, but I know, I've heard you talk about it before is that it's not just about like lifting weights or moving your body and eating food. There's these mental and emotional and psychological muscles that you have to work as well. Mm-hmm. So like in your own experience, like what have been some of the emotional, mental, psychological muscles that you've had to work to grow into the best version of yourself? Yeah, this really stems from kind of my first experiment with fit to fit to fit, but also life experiences that have led me down this path of preaching to people about the mental, emotional aspect of transformation and why those mental and emotional pieces are so important. And the second version of fit to fit to fit that I just did as a 40 year old, just this past year, I really drove home the importance of doing those things just like it's important to meal prep and, and, and eat healthy food and exercise, which is stuff we know we're supposed to do. But I added in things like positive affirmations, gratitude list, meditation on top of what we're already doing to really help with the mental emotional side of this transformation. And that just comes from my own personal life experience of, you know, going through a divorce, leaving the religion I grew up in, kind of hitting rock bottom and then discovering who I was without those two things, which really are big components of our identity. If you think about it, like if you grew up in a certain religion for the first 30 plus years of your life, your identity is wrapped in around. I am this, this religion. Like I am that, that becomes a part of our identity. And then to lose that and to lose like this marriage of 10 years, it, it which just becomes part of your identity. <clears throat> it's like, all right, self-discovery, <laughs> who am I? And so therapy, life coaching, meditation really helped out. Gratitude list really helped out. Positive affirmations really helped out. Books, podcasts that really helped shift my perception and really discover who I was. Those kinds of things are really have really helped me out, which I've been able to pass on to my followers when they start and embark on a like a fitness journey. I weave in these mental and emotional tools and, and hacks to help them really be more fulfilled during this process because physical transformation isn't just physical. I think everyone that's been on the journey, like you, you've lost weight. Yeah. It's physical in the sense you need to eat less and and work out, right? Like that's physical, but the emotional component of the journey is more powerful than people think because our emotions factor into, are we motivated to work out today? Are we motivated to eat healthy food today? Or are we going through you know, financial stress, or are we going through a a breakup or divorce, or are we going through relationship issues with our kids or our boss or whatever the life stress could be, those tie in and factor into, okay, do I want to eat healthy today? Or do I want to sit on the couch and eat my emotions? All of that factors into, you know, whether or not we're going to stay consistent with this lifestyle change. And so adding in those components of those things that have worked for me really have made a difference in, you know, my followers that have done this journey with me the second time, because they're not just focusing on working out, they're also focusing on working in. And if you could do both of those, then I feel like this, this transformation becomes more of a lifestyle change instead of just another diet. Right. So what was it about at like weaving in those mental Mm -hmm. and emotional tools that, that helped your followers or your clients or people that did your programs? Like, what do you think it was about them that helped? Was it the fact that it gave them something else to be consistent with when the scale wasn't moving? Was it the positive effect it had on the brain? Like, like if you were to talk to some of your followers and ask them, like, what about that helped them get through their weight loss journey? Like what specifically do you think it was? Yeah. Self-awareness and self-awareness is the key to overcoming any addiction because what it does is it helps the, it helps the person connect the dots of, learning why they're triggered and why they do what they do. Right. So for example, uh, it helps them become the observer of their thoughts. So let's say they're working on meditation. They're working on gratitude lists, positive affirmations, these things that I've mentioned. If you could build someone's self-awareness through those tools and other tools that like, like I said, podcasts and books and therapy and life coaching, whatever you use, there's tons of tools out there. If you could build self-awareness and realize, okay, 
why, why do I feel sad in these moments? Or when I'm stressed out, why do I reach for that cake or the chocolate or the alcohol or the drugs, whatever it is, you know, we, we use all kinds of substances to numb the pain of, of whatever life situation we're going through. Learning why we do what we do is really important. So you can connect the dots a lot better of like, Oh, when I'm stressed out with my partner, you know, my, my spouse, we get into an argument that triggers certain emotions of frustration, anger, resentment, whatever it is. And when I'm feeling that way, I don't want to go to the gym. I don't want to eat chicken and broccoli. I want to eat pizza and ice cream because those things I've trained my brain over the years to use that food to numb the pain of the, the situation that I'm going through in life. And most likely we've probably done that from a young age. And as we become aware of that, we're, we're then more in control of how we respond to those situations instead of just react. Because if we just react, we've programmed our brain to reach for that substance, to numb that pain, to, you know, to deal with it. And that's how we, instead of dealing with the, the actual issue at hand, we kind of look for these substances to distract us from dealing with it, to temporarily numb that pain so that we can get through life, right? It's very similar to, you know, a, a, a drug addict using drugs to deal with their their pain we a lot of people use food and like i said food is probably the most powerful drug because it's the most accessible it's super affordable it's cheap it's convenient and man it freaking tastes good and mm. it makes you feel good it gives you that similar dopamine hit a chemical reaction in the brain where you feel good temporarily despite the pain that you're going through and food you can take multiple hits per day breakfast lunch dinner snacks dessert <laughs> that's a lot of you know drug hits per day that you feel good temporarily and so it becomes even, it becomes really addictive. And so, you know, being able to break that is really difficult because we try and think, Hey, just stop, stop eating the food. It's like, okay, Oh, I'm trying, but I've trained my brain to react this way every time I'm stressed out. And now to, to overcome that, the key is self-awareness. So in the moment, instead of reacting, now we can kind of thoughtfully respond because now we're just observing what's happening. We're not attaching our emotions to it. We're not reacting to it we're able to thoughtfully respond and that so those things that i mentioned help to build that self-awareness which then in turn helps us to respond thoughtfully in those situations where we can learn to breathe detach from those emotions for a second and and make a decision what's the best course of action moving forward and so it's really about building that self-awareness is the key to overcome any kind of addiction and these kinds of tools you know, have been really, have been proven to be really effective for a lot of people in, 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 in overcoming those addictions. Yeah. Self-awareness is everything in life, no matter if you're going through something um, painful or if you're trying to achieve something that's meaningful, like being aware of what it is you want to, to achieve or what it is you want to cut out of your life or what it is you want to change is everything because without self-awareness, you really don't know what it is that you need to change or do to get better. So speaking of that, speaking of self-awareness, speaking of addiction, I know you have, haven't specifically had an addiction to food, so to speak, but I know there's been something else in your life that's been really powerful that has essentially hijacked your brain at different points of your life. And that's porn. And, yeah. and speaking of the self-awareness, I like to, to go back and, and have, and see if people can develop that awareness to see like, what was it? Like what happened? Like why porn? Like, why did you turn to, to porn? Why did you turn to that as a form of, of feeling love and, and that sort of thing? So walk the audience through, like, I don't, cause I don't know if we, I've gone in depth about this mm. yet. Like what exactly led to your porn addiction? Like how it started, like, what was your first experience like, and then how it built up over time? We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second, but first wanted to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Legion. If you're anything like me, you only take the best of the best when it comes to supplements, and you're always looking for those that are also backed by science, use natural sweeteners, and fully transparent with their ingredients. This is why I love the products at Legion, which is also the number one all-natural sports supplement company in the world. I currently am enjoying their vanilla plant protein, which goes into a post-workout smoothie after I work out, or it acts as a quick snack while on the run or between clients and interviews. 
I think we can all agree that 2021 is a year that we need to make health a priority, which is also why I consistently take their Triumph multivitamin and immune support to ensure that I am doing everything I can to feel my best. So if you want to follow my lead and take the best supplements around that have free shipping and a 100% money back guarantee, go to buylegion.com forward slash Doug and use code Doug to get 20% off your first order. Again, it's buylegion.com forward slash Doug and use code Doug at checkout. Now back to the show. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think I've ever done this on a podcast. So I think for me, uh, the whole porn thing started with my programming from the religion I grew up in of teaching me that, you know, porn is a sin, sexuality before marriage or being sexually active before marriage is a sin. And it's a sin next to murder and seriousness. So there was murder, which is like the top sin. The next one underneath that was sex outside of marriage, pornography or masturbation. So for me as a little kid, I'm thinking, okay, this is bad, but because it's bad, it kind of made me crave it or want to do it more because I knew it was not good, but it was so powerful because I was like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. I didn't know how to control it. And so I didn't have an outlet to talk to anyone about it because it's so shameful in our culture to talk about, you know, pornography or masturbation. It's a taboo topic. My parents didn't know how to talk about it with me. I felt disgusted talking or admitting to someone that I had that problem. So what did I do? I kept it inside and suppressed it. Like, like we're taught in society as a man, you don't talk about your feelings or emotions. You don't talk about your weaknesses. You learn to suppress them deep down so that no one ever knows about them. So that no one ever discovers them. And you just live with that shame. And shame is a super powerful <laughs> tool. That's way more powerful than a lot of us think. And good luck trying to keep it down your entire life to keep it suppressed. It manifests itself in some form or another. And for me, it manifested itself in self-hate. So here I was, the way I programmed myself after this was, okay, don't do this. It's bad. Therefore, if I do do it, then I am bad and I'm a failure and I'm disgusting. Um, I didn't know how to separate that from, you know, I'm doing something bad versus I am bad. And so I grew up with that very unhealthy behavior and porn kind of just became this addiction uh, for me to, you know, like I said, people gravitate towards different substances, food, drugs, alcohol, sex, porn, to kind of help you through the the pains of life. And there was this chemical reaction in the brain when you would look at it to where it made me feel good temporarily. And then afterwards, that feeling was gone. Self-hate, self-disgust was there prevalent time and time again. And I'm like, all right, just stop doing it. Right. (laughs) Like, you know, that same kind of discipline I try to put on other people, like stop eating the food I would put on myself to stop looking at it. And years and years of programming myself, it made like, it was impossible to get out of what made me and what eventually helped me was one hitting rock bottom. Two was, all right, do I want to stay stuck here? And do I want to play the victim mindset? Do I want to blame my parents? Do I want to blame, God, do I want to blame the religion? Do I want to blame, you know, the culture I grew up in? Like all these things I could have stayed and blamed other people for, or do I want to learn how to overcome this? And so for me, you know, the tools available to me at the time were, you know, through the religion, you know, prayer, repentance, forgiveness, talking to your leaders, but I didn't feel safe in that environment because I felt like there was a punishment involved, which caused a lot of public embarrassment because you how can I describe this the best way when you go to church you partake of the sacrament which is bread and water and you're only supposed to partake of it if you're worthy so if you're masturbating or looking at porn that's not you're not worthy and that's a sin so to not partake of it was very embarrassing because it's passed around and everyone can kind of see so you feel like people are looking at you so you're like okay I have to take it otherwise someone's going to notice and, and if you confessed it, then they're like, okay, you can't take it for a month until you fix this problem. And, you know, the problem was never truly fixed. When I hit rock bottom, when I got discovered by my ex-wife, you know, we can throw in the affair to this whole conversation as well. Because for me, the affair is kind of thrown in because this kind of stemmed from the self-hate that I talked about, where doing the porn, the masturbation led to self-hate. When you see yourself as a failure and you hate yourself, you self-sabotage. You tend, most people tend to self-sabotage because they already believe they're a failure. So what does it matter? If you've already failed at life and everything else, then you're just going to continue to do failure-like things. 
So throw that in there. My ex-wife found out I hit rock bottom. What am I going to do? So I had to, the only hope that I had was I was, I wanted to be the best dad I could be for my girls, because I knew if I didn't break the cycle, then this kind of hurt or trauma that I had put on myself would then get passed on to them if I didn't learn how to break this. So the motivation to get myself out of that rock bottom uh, was my daughter's and being the best dad I could be. So from there, what I did was, okay, how am I going to get out of this? And for me, it, it had to do with being open to things outside of my circle of tools that I was, that were available to me. So church and stuff like that helped me for so long, but it was no longer working, right? The tools that I had. So going to therapy was the first thing outside of that circle of tools where I'm like, okay, I've never tried this before. Maybe I'll give it a try. And so going to therapy and then this life coach, and, and that's where I started to be open to new things like meditation. I was never open to meditation before. But I was like, you know what? I'll try it because I'm willing to try anything right now that will help me overcome this. You know, so going to therapy, life coaching, meditation, books, podcasts, self-reflection, spending time by myself, getting to know who I was. And slowly over time, my perception of that addiction slowly changed because then I started to observe why I was doing what I was doing. I was reacting to stressful situations in life. And then when go towards what I had trained my body to do, which was look at porn, which relieves that stress temporarily, or eat that piece of cake, which does the same thing, or take that drug, which does the same thing. It's just different, you know, it does the same thing, but it's just, we all choose different <laughs> mechanisms to numb the pain, right? Or to help us through that. And as I became more self-aware and learned who I was, I was in more in control of that. Plus getting rid of the whole perception of like, you know, sex is bad. I am bad. You know, sexual desires is bad, are bad. Uh, porn is bad. Instead of looking at it as good and bad, I looked at it as it just is. It's neither good or bad. If I choose for it to be good or I choose for it to be bad, but without it having this power over me of like, this is this bad thing. I shouldn't do it because it will make me bad. Now I could look at it as it just is. And I could choose to react how I want to towards it. And so I became more the observer of my thoughts in those moments and said, okay, do it. this is what's happening. This is exciting. It's, it's beautiful. It's like, you know, it's sexually attractive. But instead of me reacting to it and attaching an action to it, now I could sit back and observe it and be like, okay, what do I want to do here? Do I want to go down this path where probably it's not going to be the most fulfilling thing? Yeah, it's fun in the moment, similar to food or similar to a drug. Yeah, it's fun in the moment, but all I'm doing really is numbing the pain. And so as you practice that kind of mindset, you get better at responding in those moments where normally you would just react. And you slowly start to separate yourself from your emotions. And as you separate yourself from your emotions and you don't, you decide not to attach yourself, then the action of doing something that you know is going to be the best for you, you have more power over, over choosing that. And, but it takes time. It takes practice. It took me years to figure this out. And so this is a long winded answer. I'm sorry, but hopefully it's, you know, resonating with you and your audience of how I was able to, you know, trace these steps of how I was able to overcome this addiction and now I could look at porn, you know, if I wanted to, because that's the thing is I've broken that cycle of porn is bad. But for me, I could look at it and be like, okay, cool. But I know that's not what I want. That's not fulfilling for me. And I have total control over how I respond to it. You know, back in the day, I would like try and find sneaky ways to access it. And now it's just one of those things where it's like, I don't access it. But if it does pop up, like, which it probably will at some point, whether watching a movie on social media, like you're going to find it at some point. It's going to pop up in front of you. So instead of me saying, okay, I can't look at it because it's going to control me. Now I can look at it, observe it and be like, all right, what do I want to do with this? Now I can thoughtfully respond in those moments where I'm like, okay, cool. I've been there, done that, where I've had my reaction to it. And now I can just be like, okay, that's cool, but it's a fantasy. It's not real. It's not, you know, porn. That's the thing with porn is it's this fantasy of, of what we think sex is. When in reality, it's nothing like that. And so anyways, it's just, that's how I've been able to overcome it. And, it, you know, but hopefully that, that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And, and gosh, thanks for your vulnerability and for, for sharing that and, 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 sure. and, and really just being so open about your journey, because, you know, this is something that we, that really doesn't get talked about a whole lot specifically on, on my show. I don't think I've really gone into 
the trajectory of porn addiction. We've talked about mm. drug addiction and how it just starts with like smoking weed and then the weed progresses to smoking more weed, then you sell it, then Coke, then Oxy, then heroin, and you're shooting heroin. But we haven't talked about porn. So kind of before we get into more specific tools of what exactly you do now to kind of keep yourself kind of like level-headed. And, and also I want to talk about how you mended the relationship uh, with your ex-wife because I know now you've you've kind of all moved out to Hawaii together. Not that you and her are together, but your core unit family is there right now. I want to go back. Like how did, I know you talked about how it kind of originated with you growing up in, in the church and how oppressive yeah. it was, but did you just discover a magazine? Was it a website? Like what, like walk oh, the audience yeah. through like what that path was like, where did the, the magazine or the website lead you? Like, like, how do you know if you have a problem? Like, cause when you hear porn and porn addiction, like, is it that you were watching it for five hours a day? Is it that you were <laughs> masturbating 10 times a day? Like, like, what did that look like? This is what's so interesting now. My perception has totally changed versus, you know, when I was in the church versus now that I'm out of the church. Right. My perception of, you know, when I say porn addiction, people outside the church kind of laugh because the, the definition of addiction is totally different. Like for me, it started from a very young age where like my friends exposed me to some magazines or, you know, watching a movie or something. I don't remember like the first experience. It was probably actually, I think I do remember it was watching the movie airplane. I think that was the first movie I saw boobs in. <laughs> it was rated PG. I don't know if you remember that scene. There was like a random scene where there was boobs and it started from a very young age. Um, and then, you know, when did I knew, know it became a problem? That's a good question. Probably not until, I mean, because in high school, you know, I knew it was bad. I looked at it, but all my friends on the football team, my wrestling team, that's all they talked about was like, oh my gosh, I saw this, this magazine or this, this movie and I masturbated. And then as I became a teenager, I was like, oh, okay, I guess that's what you're supposed to do. So I started getting into that and then I would access it because there was no internet back then. So I would access it through friends or, you know, whatever, when it, whenever it was accessible, but it wasn't like a daily thing. It wasn't hours per day. It was, you know, maybe probably once every, you know, couple of weeks or once a week, you know, yeah, it, it depends on how much access I had to it, you know, cause you know, you're, you're living your life. You have to go to school, you have football and wrestling practice and meets and you have, you know, you go to church. It's not like you're sitting at, at home all day, you know, controlled by this desire to want to look at it all day. So it was, that's what I'm saying. It's like once every couple of weeks, but now that I'm out of the church, looking back on it, I'm like, I was probably just a normal kid, just like every other kid was <laughs> like where you had hormones and you had this desire to be sexually active. And that was my outlet. Cause I wasn't picking up on girls. I wasn't sleeping with girls. Uh, Cause I didn't, you know, I was a shy kid. And so anyways, it, that's why I'm saying like my perception has changed over time of like, okay, was it really addicted or was it just a normal kid that, had this desire to be sexually active and this was like the closest thing to 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 that uh, that was my outlet for it does that make sense yeah i mean no it makes total sense because you're right i think if you grow up in an environment where the slightest thing off the path is considered to be horrible then if you do the slightest thing off the path you're going to view that as being horrible like in that environment that you grew up in and then i think what probably happened as a result too, is this the um, intense amount of shame that was created, not only just from your family dynamic and the church and everything else, but just knowing that you probably shouldn't have been doing that in a way you, you, you were saying, you knew that it wasn't like ideal, but yeah. you were just doing what your friends were doing. So I think that snowball of shame made things worse. And you yeah. just started to, to stack all these insecurities, stack intimacy issues, stack pain trauma and then you don't have relationships when you're a kid like intimate relationships and that stacks more pain more trauma more like what's wrong with me or you know why can't yeah. i find love and then you you get married and i think early on before before like you hit that rock bottom and you got, you got divorced i think you and your wife had some communication mm -hmm. about your relationship with porn and and you had kind of made a commitment to stop and then we all know kind of how that that works where you try to, and you just, it's not that simple as just saying stop, right? If it was that simple, yeah. everybody would stop. So with that said, do you think that like, what do you, like, what do you think caused more of the, the divorce with your wife? Like, was it the porn specifically, or was it mm -hmm. like the, the intimacy issues or the fear of intimacy that 
had been created as a result of not having these early on relationships and the way you grew up and then combine that too with now you've you're, you're teaching yourself this instant gratification where it's like, Oh, if I want to go find love real quick, I can just go look at porn or I can go yeah. like, look at this girl. Like, have you thought about that at all? Yeah. A hundred percent. And that's why it's very complex because people are like, Oh, why did you get divorced? And right. as if yeah. they want like a simple answer, it's like, yeah. man, it's more complicated. You know, obviously her finding out about the addiction, about, you know, about the affair that I had, you know, if that really was the cause of it, she would have divorced me right away. Right she would have been like, Oh, you cheated on me. Okay. We're done. Right. And you know, she didn't, like, we stayed together for five years after that. We tried to work it out. We went to, you know, our, our church and went through like the repentance process of, of the way the church does it, which was a lot of shame and guilt and, you know, more self-hate, but you know, we went to, to counseling, you know, and then that's where, you know, there was a lot of ups and downs where it's like, okay, we're going to stay together. Okay. Well, it was too painful for both of us what ultimately led to the divorce was, was interesting because there was times where like she was done and she's like, I can't do this anymore. And then there was times where she's like, no, okay, we'll stay together because it was so, it was a roller coaster of emotions for her where no matter what I did, the trust was broken, right? The trust issue was the biggest thing where I lied to her, you know, pretty much her whole marriage about me looking at that stuff. And so I lied to her face. And so she couldn't trust anything I said. So if I'm, you know, on a business trip or if I'm at the gym and I'm like, Hey, I'm not doing anything wrong. Like I promise you, like there's nothing happening. She doesn't, you know, rightfully so she doesn't believe me. So, so what happened was, um, you know, that she was in a lot of pain from it, obviously, which I don't blame her, but there, the trust can never be rebuilt. Even if I gave her access to my phone, even if I deleted my Facebook account, which I did, like nothing I did could ever was ever good enough to prove to her that I had changed because I was constantly trying to prove to her that I had changed. Like I wanted it to work out. I wanted it to, to, to not be over. I didn't want to be seen as a failure, you know? So I was willing to do whatever it took. Like, here's my phone. You can check it. I'll go to addiction recovery program. I'll do all these things to prove that I can change. And did I end up changing? Yes. But the amount of effort in me trying to prove to her that I had changed was exhausting for me, of course, because I'm always walking on eggshells, like, you know, uh, trying to do my best to, you know, make sure I was not talking to other people inappropriately or not even the perception of her thinking like, oh, you're going to the gym. Are there women there? Are you talking to any of them? Are you friends with any of them? You know what I'm saying? I tried to avoid the, even the appearance of, of any kind of evil, if you will. And, you know, it wasn't until we met our life coach about four years later and once I started going to that life coach, she was the first person who taught me to learn how to love myself, mm. even going through the religion and like the, the, the addiction recovery and the repentance process. Like I, ne- I still hated myself for what I did. I still was disgusted with myself. And so my motivation was coming from a place of self-hate. Like if I just hate myself more and discipline myself more, then I won't ever make this mistake again. Right. That's kind of like the mentality I grew up with. When I met this life coach, she was the first person to really teach me to learn how to love myself despite my past, despite what I did. And I saw this glimmer of hope, this light at the end of the tunnel where I was like, wow, maybe I am still lovable despite what I did. Maybe I am still worthy of love. And when I started to believe that, I saw our relationship through a different lens where now I was operating out of a place of self-love. And I could see that this wasn't going to work long term because no matter what I tried to do for her to prove to her that I had changed, it was always going to hurt her. And it was also killing me inside too, to try and prove to her that, Hey, I have changed, like check all my stuff. I promise you. And it just wasn't healthy in the end. And so we both kind of decided like, Hey, this is probably the best time for us to go our separate ways and, and call it quits and, and get divorced. But it was coming from a place of healing and from a place of self-love instead of like, I hate you and never want to see you again. And that's why we're still good friends today. That's why we still have a good co-parenting relationship is because we've both done the work on ourselves individually and healed ourselves to realize that, you know, the other person is not responsible for our emotional well-being, or the other person is not responsible for our happiness. That's up to me. And that's what that life coaching session did for me. And it's called uh, the work by Byron Katie. She's got a book called loving what is I highly, highly recommend anyone listen to that book. If you struggle with anything, you know, the, the work is actually able to be used with, any kind of situation in life that's causing you kind of 
grief or pain that maybe your perception of it is like, this is, this is hard. And this is, I'm suffering because of this. It's a, it's a great way, unique way to overcome these kinds of perceptions of ourselves or the other person. Right. And that's what really helped me eventually, you know, decide to get divorced, but from a place of, of self-love instead of self-hate. Gosh, there's so much to, to unpack there. I know. <laughs> yeah. And dude, like kudos to both of y'all for, for maintaining a, a, a good relationship through all this, because I can't imagine how tough it is for both of you to kind of do that, you know, with, with everything that that's, that's happened, everything that's going on right now. But before we talk about kind of how you did that, like I'm just putting myself in her shoes and just thinking about like the dynamic and what I know about addiction. It's like, it's really hard because if you've spent, I mean, just making this up 30 years in unhealthy coping patterns and unhealthy emotional regulation tactics, 30 years of, of making these, these same decisions and you're caught in that same cycle, it's going to take time to get out of that. So like when you finally become aware of that, which you did in your marriage, and then your wife is like, okay, let's make this work. But yet you're in an industry where you're around people of the opposite sex all the time. Like it's really hard for that person to trust you. And, and again, like rightfully so, because I think what happens and I've, I've been in this position too. And I think this is a really important point for people listening to this to, to really take note on is that when you make poor decision after poor decision, after poor decision, you break the distrust of your spouse, of your parents, of your kids, whoever, like we, we automatically think that when we think we're going to, we're, when we, when we're taking that step in the right direction, that all of a sudden they should just automatically trust us right then and there. And while yeah. ideally that would be awesome, if, if, especially if our intention and our integrity is aligned with that, where we know we're not going to make that same mistake again, but reality yeah. is it's just not how it works. If you've broken trust for so many years, yeah. you can't all of a sudden expect somebody to just <laughs> flip a switch and say, Oh, okay. After you break in my, my trust for 10 years, Stay yeah. this day three. Like, I'm just going to trust you now for the rest of my <laughs> life and have no questions. So with yeah. that said, I know you talked about one of the things that was, was life-changing for both you and your ex-wife to have this co-parenting relationship that you have was, was doing the work on yourselves. What are some other things that you both have done together that have, have made this relationship that you have so special? Good question. We haven't really done a whole lot together, to be honest with you, other than that we did the life coaching separate. Like, you know, we did. Is there any like communication tactics you guys use or anything Mm -hmm. you guys do specifically around the kids? You guys spend time together around the kids? Yeah, we we do. We do spend holidays together. Christmas, usually we'll do Christmas morning together. Birthdays we do together as well. You know, we don't spend a lot of one-on-one time like talking to each other, but, you know, we update each other on issues that our daughters are having, you know, how we can help them out through that situation, whether it's, you know, an emotional thing or a, a physical health thing that they're struggling with or you know, there's, we're constantly in communication about our, our kids and, and what they're struggling with so that the other person is aware of it. And so that the other person can kind of be on top of like trying to help them through that. And so I think that open communication, especially about our, our daughters is really healthy and really important. And plus, you know, getting together with, with her and her fiance from time to time has been helpful too, where it's not just me and her talking. It's also me, her and him talking because he's a part of their life as well. So including him on like the family talks and the family discussions is really important as well, but it's not something that's like, we have to sit down once a week and it's not something that's super formal, but it's just, it's that, that line of communication is open at any time. Like I could call her and be like, Hey, do you have a few minutes to talk, you know, about, you know, one of our daughters or whatever. She's totally fine with doing that and vice versa. So I think that that helps Mm -hmm. us to maintain this good relationship to be honest with you. And, you know, I know that she goes to therapy. I know that I go to therapy. And so any kind of issues that I'm having or she's having, we, it's like, I know that I trust her that she is, you know, uh, open to working on herself and, and progressing. Right. And same thing with me. Like, I know I have stuff I still need to work through and I, and she trusts me that I'm going to work on those things, you know, to heal that part of myself. And so I, I trust her as well. So. Yeah, that's good. It's good to hear and good to know because there's, there's, there's so many people that get into these situations where a spouse cheats or or something else drastic happens in the marriage and it ends. And then the, the co-parenting relationship becomes more toxic than the marriage was. And then it trickles down into the kids. And when the kids have already gone through something 
intensely traumatic, it just makes that trauma so much worse and more like traumatic than I don't want to say it needs to be because we all have our own journeys, but it makes it more traumatic. And so yeah. I just think it's really in- inspiring that that you guys have kind of both come to terms with with yourselves and, and done the work on yourselves and then kind of come together. So w- with that said, I know you had to do a lot of work on yourself in the process. Like what is one piece of advice that you have for somebody listening mm-hmm. to this who is like waiting for that other person to come around, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a parent, whether it's a kid where the, the person listening to this has maybe made some mistakes in their life. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're really struggling to get the trust back of, of the per, of somebody that they love. Yeah. Three things come to mind. One of them is, is a book called the four agreements, learning to not take things personally and not to make assumptions are two of those agreements that really factor into this situation that you're talking about. I think it's a powerful, easy book that everyone should read, especially when it comes to dealing with, you know, a, a spouse or someone in this situation. So the four agreements is the first one. The second book is called ego is the enemy by Ryan Holiday, a great book to recognize when your ego gets in the way of your suffering and how much of your suffering is caused by your own ego and being more aware of when, when it's your ego, that's kind of, you know, causing these issues versus, you know, something that's a real issue that, that, that really needs to be, you know, addressed or overcome. And I I think just being aware and recognizing when your ego is involved versus when your higher self is, is, you know, needing something. Right. so that's the second book. The third thing is this work that I'm talking about by Byron Katie, finding a practitioner, a life coach in your area, or, you know, I know one that does, you know, zoom calls. Her name's Catherine Dixon. She's my life coach. And, and being open to this type of training, if you will, to help deal with this other person that might be making your life suffer or cause suffering in your life. And just shifting your perception of the situation is really, really powerful because what happens is when someone does something to us, we tell ourselves a story, we make assumptions about that person and what they're doing. And then we suffer a thousand times more in our head of what's happening versus what, you know, what in reality is, is happening and learning to let go of, of, of those stories is, is really powerful. You can learn how to do that. And so those are the three things I I think that would help anyone in these types of situations that you're describing. Hmm. Those are three great books. I haven't, I haven't dove into Byron Katie's work a lot. I mean, I'm familiar with her and actually tried to get her on the podcast a couple of times. And, and I know that, you know, a lot of people have seen so many benefits from her and, and I've definitely read ego is the enemy and the four agreements, two phenomenal books that if you haven't read it, people listening to this, you got to go just, pause the episode right now, go to Amazon, pick those two books up and read them repetitively and, and you won't be disappointed. And I know I appreciate that response. I think, you know, those books can definitely help people when they're looking to go, um, when they're helping to bridge that gap, because you're right. I think it comes down to our ego and, and humbling ourselves and knowing it's, you know, we can't fix that other person. We can't force them to come around. The only thing that we can do is to work on ourselves and be so diligent about being yeah. consistent with doing that work. So last question I have for you is speaking of doing the work is like, what are some things that you do on a consistent basis to help you with, with the porn addiction? I mean, does it still creep up? Is there things, is there times where you're like, like, man, like I really want to go watch porn right now. And then this happens. I know you said you've changed your relationship with it, but I know you've said that having two girls has helped change that relationship and that you've definitely made these drastic transformations in your own life as well it's yeah really good question man and it's so interesting where it's like it's not even a factor or a thought in my mind i know that looking at it out of the lens of where i used to to where i look at it now it's just a thing that doesn't have any kind of control or power over me because i choose not to give it that power but this took years to learn how to do this so for me it's not like oh my gosh i gotta i gotta see this i gotta look at this I could literally watch it if, if I pull it up on my phone, which that's the thing is I don't go out of my way to look at it, right? I don't go out of my way to like find it or like crave it in that sense. But I also don't think it's like this bad thing if I do see it or do happen to see it. it, it it's just the desire to look at it, spend time looking at it and getting sucked into that world. I can observe it and and kind of see it for what it is. It's this fantasy that, yeah, it has these, you know, this chemical reactions in my brain that makes me feel good. But for me, the time commitment to go look at it, for me, it just isn't that this craving that I have to have. Now, 
maybe that's transferred over into other areas of my life where it's like, okay, maybe that's food or maybe that's, you know, some alcohol or some THC from time to time where I'm like, okay, I crave this and I want to like use this as my escape instead of pornography. But I'm aware of that too, where I'm like, all right, what's my intention? What is my intention behind looking at this? Or what's my intention behind drinking this alcohol? Like what or, or eating this food? What is my intention? Is my intention to escape? It's my intention to numb a pain that I'm going through. And if so, then I'm probably not going to do it because I know that my intention is to use that as a drug to escape my reality, right? To, to numb the pain. But if my intention is to have a drink with friends on a, on like a, a Friday night or at a, a football game where it's like a bonding experience and a, it's a positive thing, I'm not drinking to get drunk. I'm not drinking to, uh, you know, numb the pain of my breakup then it's like, okay, this is a good, this is a good positive thing. Like this is a, a something I am choosing to partake in. Or if I'm at like my, my mom's house and she makes like potato or sweet potato pie or like pumpkin pie. And I'm like this, I get this once a year and it's a family gathering. Like I'm going to eat it. But if I'm doing it by myself on a Friday night when no one else is looking, I eat the whole pie because I just went through a breakup. That's a different, that's a different situation, right? That's a di- like your intention is totally different. And so for me, it comes down to intention. What is my intention in wanting to look at this or wanting to escape, right? And so I think intention is everything. So these substances that we're talking about, food, drugs, alcohol, sex, porn, can all be abused and used as bad things when we're using it to escape. But also, I think these things can be used as good positive things, maybe in some certain situations where your intention isn't to numb the pain or escape the pains of life. I feel like that's really the difference between using these things and becoming an addict to them or using these things every once in a while when you're in control and you're like appreciating what it is. You don't feel guilty or ashamed afterwards. And that's kind of the perception or the mindset shift that I've had over the years, no matter the substance, no matter, you know, whether it's porn or alcohol or any kind of drug, you know what I'm saying? Like it all comes down to intention. Intention is everything. And you're right. It's so important. And, And with that said, along those same lines. So the last thing I kind of want to dive into on what you just said was, so say you have this awareness and you're noticing that some of these cravings are coming from an unhealthy place. Is there something that you do in those moments to help rewire your brain or change your state? Like, is it, do you go for a walk? Do you meditate? Do you hit the gym? Like, what are some things that you do? Yeah, man. It's, it sounds so simple, but it's just breathe, Mm. like connecting to your breath, because when you connect to your breath in the moment, it helps you truly be present. Right. And so just breathing through those stressful moments is super important uh, because it brings you back to the present. And when you're in the present, you're more in control. You're observing your thoughts, right? You're not attaching yourself to these stories and to these reactive uh, tendencies, but just breathing in the moment of like, of observing the situation, like, okay, breathe, I'm feeling my, my lungs fill up with air and I'm letting that air out and I'm feeling at peace now in the moment. And we don't really take the time to do that. We're constantly not even aware that we're breathing, right? We just breathe all day long, <laughs> but we're not really truly aware of it because we're like worrying about the past or anxious about the future or, you know what I'm saying? And so yeah. breathing is probably one of the most powerful things that you can do in any moment where you're about to react. You know, you're about to react. You know, you're going to reach for that cake. You know, you're going to go to your computer. You know, you're going to take that substance and just breathe and just realize, okay, is this really what I want to do? And here's the thing. There's times where all of us, even me, where I'm like, you know what? I, I breathe. I thought about it. Screw it. I'm still going to have the ice cream. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, like, yeah. and, and just be like, I need to have those moments too, where I'm just like, I'm still human. I'm still going to have those moments. And it is what it is. But the key is to not beat yourself up and feel guilty or ashamed about it afterwards. That's the, the mistake I think a lot of us make as humans. It's like, Oh, I made this mistake. Now I'm less than now I'm a failure because I gave in. It's like, no, you're human. Still, you're going to have those moments where you're like, you know what? Screw it. Give me that drink. I had a hard freaking day. But if you do that more often than not, obviously you're going to go down this path. But if you start doing that less and less often, that means you're more in control. You're more self-aware of what's happening. And yeah, you know, there's going to be times where you you are human. You're going to give into that, but just don't beat yourself up over it and think that now you're a failure. So separating that identity as like, Oh, you are this mistake that you made. Mm. I, I disagree with that. We aren't our mistakes. We aren't our past. And that's a choice that we can really learn. So. Yeah. Amen to that. I, I totally agree. Cause a lot of yeah. times what happens is the shame of the behavior 
becomes greater than the behavior in itself. Like the person who eats yeah. that pint of ice cream and then they attach this massive amount of shame around it. That shame can lead to more unhealthy patterns the next day. It can lead to this sense of pessimism saying, what well, was me laying around, not doing anything for, for days or weeks on end. And then you're like, wow, how did this happen? How did I just go from eating you know, a pint of ice cream to now I'm eating ice cream every day, or now I'm eating my feelings every day, or now I'm doing this every day. Like, where did this start from the shame yeah. of the original behavior? So Drew Manning, exactly. this has been awesome. I'm sure people are going to want to find out more about your journey. They're going to want to listen to your podcast. They're going to want to check you out on social media. So where can people do that? Yeah, it's uh, all the same fit to fat to fit with the number two. So fit number two, fat number two fit. Uh, on all social media platforms. That's also my website. That's the name of my podcast. That's also the name of my first book. So if you just type that in, you'll you'll find me. It's not too difficult. Awesome. Well, I encourage everybody listening to to check him out. Listen to his podcast. Learn more about his story. It's awesome. It's fascinating. And I admire everything that you've overcome, everything that you've you've put yourself through, I guess, unintentionally and intentionally through the years. And, and more importantly, like how you've overcome all of that and how it's made you a better person. So, so Drew, thanks. Thanks again for coming on. And for those listening, what I always try to ask is that if you had to take away, maybe it was something that, that Drew shared about his porn addiction. Maybe it was something he shared about his weight loss addiction. Maybe it was something he shared about the power of the breath or working the mental and emotional muscles, whatever it was, tag him, tag myself. We'd love to hear your feedback. And uh, we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes. We'll see you next time.